podcast doors out. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Kubrick's Universe, where we examine the theory that all roads lead back to Stanley. We have another interesting angle and even more interesting guest for you in this episode. Dimitri Kasterine was born in 1932 and was educated at Radley College, Oxfordshire. In 1961, he began his professional career as a photographer working for publications such as Queen and the Daily Telegraph magazine. In 1986, he moved from Britain to the United States, which he had first visited on an assignment to photograph Mick Jagger in Los Angeles for the Radio Times. Years later, in 2000, Dimitri would direct and film a documentary on the late, great Anthony Bourdain as he moved from chef to best-selling author to globe-hopping adventurer and television celebrity. Dimitri Kasterine has photographed many iconic cultural figures of the 20th century, including Francis Bacon, William Burroughs, Johnny Cash, Roald Dahl, George Carlin, David Hockney, Jean-Michael Basquiat, and Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. His work has been on display at the National Portrait Gallery in London and is part of their permanent collection. The Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery also has several of his portraits in their permanent collection. He also had a long association with Stanley Kubrick, taking stills on Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and A Clockwork Orange. So, of course we wanted to speak with him. We hope you enjoy hearing about his rather unique experience working with the greatest filmmaker of the 20th century. Okay, um... Dimitri, as we understand it, you became a photographer professionally in 1961 at the ripe young age of 29, and uh, you were working in London at the time. Do you recall what kind of assignments uh, you were covering in those early days of your career? Yes, my early days uh, were covering, I was covering my friends' engagements and weddings. Aha. Uh-huh. And um, that went along okay. And then suddenly there was this burst of interest in photographs in magazines. And I thought that was a better bet. So I approached various magazines and started working for them. And I also got some advertising work. Uh, I went on with the weddings, funnily enough, uh, simply because I found uh, the behavior of the English upper classes uh, quite interesting to photograph. Uh, I I don't think I was very popular as a wedding photographer because I quite often forgot to photograph the people who <laughs> I went for the people who looked the most interesting. But I had a great friend who was a uh, she she was a caterer, and uh, she seemed to like my work, and she was uh, often asked who to get to do the photographs, and she'd get me, and I'd I'd toil along, and and um, 
couldn't wait to get home and do something else. <laughs> interesting. So you, you're saying you found uh, some of the more interesting subjects at the wedding to you to be folks other than the wedding party itself. Yes, very much so. And, and <laughs> behavior with each other. Mm-hmm. There's, always, there's always this tension at weddings between camps. And yes. I, I managed to uh, record that. Oh, that's rather interesting. Um, I'm sure it would have made you uh, a more interesting conversationalist amongst your peers, but perhaps not so much with the uh, folks that hired you. No, that's perfectly true. And, of course, one was looked down upon by one's peers for doing weddings anyway. Mm. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, <laughs> in in a in a way, I mean, uh, not uh, agreeing with it, but um, well, you know, you you didn't get stuck, shall we say, uh, doing that because you did, uh, as as we understand, you ended up photographing some of the most prominent, uh, aka famous people uh, from the last. Uh, half century or so. Do, do you have any highlights of, uh, of your own memory? Well, the highlights really were. Um, I I had a, a, a very good association with Radio Times. Mm. Uh, I became a, a popular photographer with them and a very good friend of the art director, David Driver. Mm. Uh, we saw eye to eye about everything, almost anyway. Uh, and one day he rang me up and he said, it was Tuesday, and he said, uh, uh, are you free to go to Los Angeles to photograph Mick Jagger on Thursday? So I said, yes. And I turned up at the airport and they said, well, you can't get on this plane because you don't have a visa. Mm. And it was, it was a Saturday morning. But I called the American embassy and the woman who answered the telephone said, after I'd explained what the trouble was, she said, well, funnily enough, the guy who does the visas has come in to collect some work to take home for the weekend. I'll put you through to him. And he said, oh, come on over. I'll get you a visa. I mean, can you imagine that happening now? <laughs> yeah, no, not so much. And I, I got in a taxi, got to Grosvenor Square, got my visa, got mm. back in a taxi. And, of course, the, by, the, the luck was with me that day in every direction. The plane was delayed. So I got <laughs> on the plane and sat down next door to the journalist I was going with, and he was absolutely astonished. Well, I... I, I uh, <laughs> and then I waited for five days in um, the uh, corridor, same corridors Mick Jagger has his room, mm-hmm. uh, because he kept very odd hours. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was always busy. And at the end of the fifth day, about five o'clock in the afternoon, I heard him whooping along the, uh, he was always shouting and yelling. <laughs> and uh, he, he came along the corridor dragging this girl with him who was dressed in a, a, a cotton a flowered dress, and she had white gloves on, I remember very distinctly. Mm. And, we, and he passed by my room, and I was sitting outside. He said, oh, Dimitri, I'm so sorry. Uh, so I, I sort of interrupted him. I said, listen, before you have her, 
<laughs> I'm going to take your picture. And uh, he, he agreed. And, and that was it. And we were very pleased. But uh, the sad thing about that was that, that I did go to one or two rehearsals. Not that that helped. I still couldn't photograph him. But uh, I was... I was absolutely bewitched by Keith Richards. Mm-hmm. I makes never, two of us. Never photographed him, but I just oh loved, wow, loved what he did on stage. So that was yeah. Uh, yeah. So on it went, and uh, funnily enough, uh, quite a lot of the people were commissions that you see on my website and so on. Mm-hmm. But quite a lot I just wrote to because I wanted to photograph them because I find you know I I liked what they did. Sure, and uh, that was much easier than than having uh, agents, editors, public relations people breathing down your neck. Mm-hmm. It's always that terrible collusion that you have to make with unofficial photographs. Yes, yeah. Who who were a few others? If uh, uh, I may ask, before I move on to the next question, just that come to mind. Um, gosh. Uh, you know that was so prominent, and uh, uh, the, the, mm. the others—I uh, don't think had the same drama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not uh, as interesting a story. No, <laughs> um, uh, that's okay. I remember Roald Dahl saying, "Oh, thank God you haven't turned up in a Rolls Royce," because <laughs> uh, it was—it was kind of a thing that. Yeah, like, yeah. Pitt Bailey and, and Patrick Litchfield had Rolls Royces. Mm-hmm. He couldn't stand them or their cars. And we became great friends, actually. The the only person that I photographed that I really became a great friend of, and uh, we all went to France together one day to photograph the famous vineyard, Romani Conti. Mm. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Particularly. Well, because he couldn't stand the woman who ran the vineyard. <laughs> Always a little drama, either behind yeah. the behind the lens or in front of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, speaking of which, um, you you did come to work uh, with Stanley Kubrick on Doctor Strangelove in 1964. Do you recall how you were hired, and uh, did yes, Kubrick I, hire I, you personally? I recall that very clearly. Um, I was working for the Tatler, doing some pictures of Tom Jones, mm. and I became friendly with the a publicist. And she said to me one day, oh, by the way, have you seen a film called Paths of Glory? It's on in London at the moment. So I said no, and she told me who it was directed by. And I went to see it. And, of course, I was just shattered by it. Mm. And um, I said to the editor of Harper's and Queen, look, uh, I don't know this man, but he's just made this film, which is quite extraordinary. And uh, I think we should do an article about him. He's making another one down in Shepperton Studios. So down I went and uh, went in and, and I was shown into the, uh, I think it was the war room. And there was a person with a beard playing chess with, a, with a, another man dressed as a, a general in the Air Force. So I'd, I um, 
I was introduced to Stanley, and I was there for two days doing it. And towards the end of the second day, he said to me, oh, would you like to come and work with me, for me? And I, uh, you seem to stand in the right place. Oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, I said yes, um, always needing a job. And uh, that's how it started, really. You're going to let that lousy, commie, punk vomit all over us like this? Mr. President? We haven't been able to reach Premier Kissoff and the Kremlin. They say they don't know where he is and won't be back for another two hours. Try B-86543, Moscow. Yes, sir. You would never have found him through his office, Mr. President. Our Premier is a man of the people, but he is also a man, if you follow my meaning. <laughs> what did you say? I said Premier Kissoff is a degenerate atheist. Mr. Mr. President, I formally request that you have his ignorance. I'm sorry, Mr. President. I think they're trying the number. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. What is going on here? I demand an explanation. This clumsy fool tried to plant that ridiculous camera on me. Yeah, you bet your sweets, Mr. Commie. Look at this, Mr. President. This lousy commie rat was taking pictures with this thing of the big board. Mr. <laughs> this clumsy fool attempted to plant that ridiculous camera on me. That's a damn lie. I saw him with my own eyes. Gentlemen, this is outrageous. I have never heard of such behavior in the war room before. Mr. President, I think they're getting him on the line. He seemed to understand uh, you were a kindred spirit in the uh, in the approach to photography. I like that yes, line. Of, yes, yes, he definitely did. Yes. And... Uh, he, he told me once that he gave it up because he didn't like going to people's houses. He was he was mm. nervous, and, nervous and shy. Mm. And actually, I, I bear that out because he, he really was quite shy with people. Mm. He was a terrific listener. Uh, and uh, that's partly the reason why he got such good advice. Uh, which he needed because the subjects were so complex yeah. that he tackled. So he asked a lot of people a lot of advice, and he'd just sit and listen for hours. Mm. And then he he liked me being around because I, I was from London and I had gossip for him about the, <laughs> the, the dramas of the day, the scandals of the day. Yes, of course. See, Stephen Ward being the main one. So he 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 liked me. He liked me to, to ask what I'd been doing when I turned up in the mornings. So there was always a uh, a bit of grist for the gossip mill over. Yes. Uh, yeah. No. He was very interested in everything that went on. Sometimes I I didn't even notice he was directing the film because he seemed to be interested in everything else. His cats, his children, his, yeah. his uh, chess. He's a very good chess chess player. Apparently, yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm just curious uh, if you could tell us anything about, uh, well, just your memory of working on the set at Shepperton during uh, the shooting of Strange Love. Anything about the, the the practical side of your job that you did daily? Well, I didn't do it daily. I I, I did it. 
every so often, probably once or twice a week. Mm. And that was enough because um, I, it's, it's not such a great job being a, a stills photographer on a film. You're the last person who anybody wants to see, really, because you're always in the way. Mm-hmm. And um, you're seeing the same people all the time in the same situations. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of wary. Uh, I went on with it because um, I liked to see what Stanley did when things got difficult mm. and his show of patience and perseverance. I was very short of patience in those days. Mm-hmm. I was also quite scared of, of, of asking people to do this or to do that. And I saw the way he did it. Um, and it helped me a great deal later on. And I got over my nervousness about um, perhaps being a nuisance. Mm. And, um, you know, I, the, the other day, the famous writer came along this way in Garrison. He actually lives here. And uh, my wife said, I really think you should photograph this guy. And uh, I had no qualms about it whatsoever. And I was thinking back uh, the time when I was doing my early work for Radio Times and and Kubrick. And I was really quite nervous. And now it's completely gone. And one of the reasons it's completely gone, because I did such a lot of it, Mm. There was no time to be nervous. You know? Right, right. <laughs> and and nobody ever challenged me. Nobody ever was rude to me. Nobody was ever short-tempered with me. So it was all something from my childhood or mm. whatever the clinical psychiatrists would say. Mm. It's very honest of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, on a, a lighter note, um, was it? Wasn't it true that uh, Arthur Felig, a.k.a. Ouija, was on the yes. set? Yeah, he, he always said, you know, he used to call me the artist. <laughs> he had this broad Brooklyn accent. Yeah. And he was a lot of fun. And uh, he, uh, he used to wander around with this speed graphic. Mm-hmm. Stanley adored him. And uh, what was he, your take on him? Uh, well, he he was. I mean, I can. See, I mean, he he was he was certainly without nerves. That's for sure. Interesting. <laughs> I don't think he ever experienced a nervous moment in his life, judging by what he did in the streets of New York. Yeah. Uh, but he used to go up to the actors and say, "Ham it up a bit. Ham it up a bit." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I mean, I think he was. And then he'd go off and develop everything in his hotel bedrooms. He always did, mm-hmm. and come back with these weird prints, which were all sort of uh, mm-hmm. manipulated into smears and yeah, yeah, oddities. Is this? I'm not sure if Stanley used any of his work or not, but he certainly liked having him around. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, in a way, they were. Um, you know, well, they said it was some similar backgrounds, although, of course, Stanley's father was a doctor, mm-hmm. but they came from the same part of the world. 
Yeah, of of course. They're both, yeah, um, firm New Yorkers. But you did yeah. have, uh, you had some good company there, including yourself. There were, you know, three other keen-eyed photographers on the set between yeah, Stanley. One was, from, one was from Vietnam. He He was, I felt, perhaps affected by what had happened to him in Vietnam. He was, a, I can't remember, Chikamira, Chikamirov. Mm. I think he was from, he came from Paris and uh, he, um, I think he'd had a very bad time. In, mm. Well, yeah. the fourth, the fourth guy I was uh, thinking of actually was not a professional photographer, but rather Peter Sellers, who was a an avid amateur photographer. Yes, he was. That's true. I yeah. wondered if you had well, any take yeah, on his Peter work. Sellers and, and Stanley got on very well, and uh, they would do anything for each other. And it was smooth passage with them. And um, I didn't have much to do with Peter Sellers. I photographed him later, but nothing to do with the film. I mean, I took pictures of him on the film set. Okay, okay. I, well, I did a portrait of him later. He he was he was a wild mad man. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he he was quite calm when he needed to be. He yeah. he, he was very easy for Stanley to deal with. I think Stanley had uh, a a near perfect tool in him that the way he could just kind of kind of turn on and turn off his ability. Yes, be, I think be so. Electric dream. Very sad. He couldn't couldn't. Uh, do the the he was going to be the pilot of the aircraft. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, um, speaking of pilots, to move forward, then you were uh, uh, later, you know, only a few years later, asked to take pictures by Kubrick again. This time for two thousand one, a space odyssey. Um, do you have any fond recollection of well, uh, working um, on those sets, especially was, that massive it, centrifuge set? Oh yeah, that was that was spectacular. Yes, it really was. And I was totally in, in awe of the way he he did that, the way he, he again, you know, he got all these experts in, mm. and he found a way of making it look so real, mm. where the, the camera was on a gimbal and how he... he turned the wheel and it looked like how it was. I mean, it was just so remarkable. Photographically, it wasn't, wasn't quite so interesting, I, I, I didn't find. Hmm. Why was uh, that? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I just, I just was a bit bored. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, and Stanley was busier than ever then. I didn't see, see so much of him. <coughs> when... Um, and he had a terrible row with his um, assistant director, who he valued greatly. Mm. But somehow, I, I don't know the details of the row, but he landed up pleading with him on his doorstep to come back. Because mm. he, was, he was very good. Mm. And he, he really kept the thing going. Sounds like, sounds like you have a clear recollection of that. Event. Yes, I, I do indeed. And... Uh, I sort of heard about it afterwards, but I knew that Stanley was a bit 
worried about everything. And I mean, it was a very worrying time. You you spent God knows what on this incredible piece of machinery. Mm. It's just the center of the film, and you've got to make it work. Mm. But um, on on strange stuff, I used to. I used to go to dinner with him and there was always time to see him and always time to sit and talk about. And one, one day he was complaining about a photographer he'd sent to do the um, dawn shots in Africa. Mm. And uh, there are sixteenths of a stop underexposed. <laughs> <laughs> do you know anybody who could tell whether something was a sixteenth yeah. stop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's brilliant. It certainly falls in line with uh, everything we've learned about him and continue to learn about him. Yes. Um, and you, you, it sounds like you two had a, a, a fairly smooth and friendship and uh, even a fondness for each other. Well, I think we did. And uh, I think it might have gone on, but I think he realized that I was a bit bored. And also his daughter... One of his daughters, I forget which one. One, maybe it was the one that was his stepdaughter, Katharina. She, yes, she mm-hmm. started taking photographs, and then his his blood daughter, the eldest one, took over, and she became a very good photographer and videographer. I don't know if you've seen boxes, have you? Yes, yes, well, I have. To my mind, that scene that she filmed was Stanley sitting in his director's chair, persuading the presumably production manager that a tea break is not due mm-hmm. to the crew. It was mm-hmm. one of the best pieces of behind-the-scene yes. activities I, I've ever seen, and it was filmed <laughs> by Vivian. It was Vivian, yes. That's his, uh, his youngest and yeah. she she lives in the states too. I think she's out. Yeah, she she uh, that was that was a great sadness, which you probably know more about than I do with with the Scientology thing. That was a, that was a terrible thing for Stanley. Uh, it, it, it it heavens knows what agonies it was, but mm. it could. I, I have thought about it. We all have, believe me. Uh, any of us who respect, admire, and love. Kubrick and all things Kubrickiana, yeah. Um, but you know, all, all families uh, have have their uh, their stuff, shall we say? Yes, um, and I'm no exception. Mine is no exception. <laughs> um, but you know, this is uh, not to uh, obviate the the truth of there always being good times. And if I'm not mistaken, you and Stanley, you know, speaking of good times, you know, you hung out and played ping pong some. Oh, yes, yes, we did. And uh, actually, ping pong's come back in my life in a big way. Oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> it, uh, because I always thought that it was life-enhancing beyond any other game, almost. And particularly mm-hmm. as you get older. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've got two friends here, and there's a, a fantastic uh, club down the road. Uh, How cool. Which, yeah, no, it's marvelous. And anyway, uh, then yes, he had his ping pong table in in a tent in his garden at the time, and uh, he he wasn't nearly as good at ping pong as he was at chess. Mm. Um, but then uh, Clockwork Orange also came along, and um, 
uh, first thing he told me was there was it was a very low budget. I I didn't know whether to believe him or not. It was <laughs> anyway. He paid me, uh, and um, tell uh, us a, a bit about that. You were uh, I mean one he he he'd always uh, like to operate the camera himself, mm-hmm. and this came uh, to. Uh, Jay of Clockwork Orange, this was almost completely uh, uh, operated by him and him alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had this stripped down Ariflex. Uh, and he, I marveled at the way he held it because it's not light, mm. even when it's stripped down. Mm-hmm. But he held it almost as though he was holding a cigarette. He smoked a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know how easy it is to hold a cigarette. Maybe you can remember if you ever smoked. Yes. And But he, I've got a few photographs of him that I treasure because it looks as though this is, this is made of paper. The mm. he's, he's holding it so gently, yet so firmly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started, um, I've made a couple of documentary films here, and I've, I, I kept that in mind, thinking, uh, no, Stanley held that camera steady. Mm. And I can do the same thing, because it's, yes. it's not even as heavy as, as a stripped-down Aeroflex. Mm. And uh, he, he uh, impressed me with that. And then... Um, one day he was filming actually with that camera and um, the cat lady and and Alex were having a fight. What the bloody hell do you want? Well, to be perfectly honest, madam, I'm taking part in an international student's contest to see who can get the most points for selling magazines. Cut the shit, Sonny, and get out of here before you get yourself into some very serious trouble. I told you to leave them alone. Now get out of here before I throw you out. They were making a terrible noise. And uh, this blessed and um, saintly assistant director knocks on the door and says, Stanley, I'm sorry to disturb you, but the landlady is beside herself with anger. They <laughs> rented this house. See. Oh, my goodness. S- silly woman decided she'd live upstairs because they didn't want the first. Oh, my gosh. And she'd come down and uh, she said, tell Stan- Stanley that I-, I want to see him at once. I can't stand this noise. So uh, he came out very sensibly and very calmly. And um, she yelled at him. And what's this film about, anyway? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and yeah. he stroked his beard and he looked at her and he said, Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's a great way to, you know, get her to go away. <laughs> Smiling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he had so, did, so did it work? Yeah, well, he had his way with people. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, he had his way. <laughs> That is way with people, yeah. 
<laughs> those are those are really cool stories. Do you have any other recollections? I mean, I don't I don't know if we can top that one, Dimitri. <laughs> of uh, any any others of the set from well, working on Clockwork, because that is uh, it's uh, it's honestly it's not my per- personal favorite Kubrick film, but it is many Kubrick fans' personal favorite. I believe it's Stevens, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, so I mean, yes. anybody would love to know what you recall. Um, I don't know. It, it was pretty nasty. I mean, there were, there were some very nasty things in it, and I, I didn't particularly like watching them being filmed. And, uh, uh, you know, he had a hard time with Margaret McDowell, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know too many details, but um, I, I think it was, it was very tough. I don't know about this that scene with the clamps on his eyes. I think that mm-hmm. really shook Malcolm McDowell, although he was an extremely well-known um, eye doctor from Moorfields who did it. I, I don't know. Mm. But... Um, well, I merely the, met as a photographer if you had any other... Uh, it, it was mainly, you know... The photography, in its, in, in a funny kind of way, the photography wasn't that interesting. I mean, what Stanley was photographing was very interesting for a film, but mm. I, I couldn't get very excited about it as a photographer. But, mm. again, he taught me patience and persistence. Mm. One day, he wanted a camera platform built, which he got done. Took them a day. And he comes in the following morning and he gets his eyeglass out and walks around and he stops on one side and he said, the shot's better from here. So they had to rebuild the whole thing. Oh gosh. Yeah. And, and that I thought, you know, he didn't make, he didn't say it in a bullying way. He didn't, it was just, the fact was that it wasn't right, but it Mm. wasn't their fault. It wasn't his fault. It was better done differently. Mm. And, he was always doing things like that. And eventually, of course, you come out with masterpieces. Now, another occasion, and I can't remember which film this was, but we all assembled at whatever time it was and waited around for two hours and nothing was happening. And and uh, I said to somebody, what's going to happen? Oh, don't you know? And I said, no. He said, well, the standing won't be coming in today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the executives from um, uh, Hollywood have turned up. Uh, he doesn't want to talk to them. And, of course, he realized that people breathing down your neck, which is anything executives from Warner Brothers do, mm-hmm. is, is disturbing the film being made. Right. So he'd lose a day and, and be perhaps a little bit rude to them. Mm. But he, I, I don't know what the excuse it was he, he gave to them, but he didn't turn up, and, and that was it. You know, they went home. There's Ooh. stories it's it surfaced uh, on other films, including Full Metal Jacket, and Warner Brothers executives would would show up unannounced, and uh, he insisted they were were not allowed out of the van, <laughs> or he wouldn't I, work. I can, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. And that's why he stuck to this guy who he had a scene with, because he 
he knew how to deal with people, actually. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I imagine that uh, some of the years being a, just a professional still photographer um, might have shaped his uh, manner of speaking with uh, folks. And uh, I'm just wondering if you and Stanley ever uh, spoke about uh, his experiences or people uh, he recalled from his time at Look Magazine. Well, he didn't actually say very much about it. Um, he was he, there was a great modesty to, to Stanley. Mm. He talked about other people's work and and so on. You know, he talked about Eisenstein and he he talked about uh, other directors. And uh, but no, the only thing he ever told me was the reason why he gave it up. Yeah, <laughs> see, because he didn't like to like to interrupt people at home you know because he was always being sent to photograph people in their houses anyway I, you, I, don't know. I mean he he his eye was there in the, in his youth as well as in his maturity is there anything else you recall about the um the the, the great story you were describing uh of stanley with the uh the araflex camera in 19 19- 70s. Are there any other details of uh, of that story? That uh, there's a story behind this shot. Something I'm told. Perhaps you might. Well, uh, um, I, I mean, I had a I had a funny kind of position. I I realized that I had rather an exalted position because several occasions I was the only person in the room besides Stanley and the actors. And he would do the clapperboard himself. He just cleared everybody out. Mm-hmm. He didn't mind me being there. And that I, looking back on, uh, I regard as something that means that he must have had some regard for me. Uh, at the time, I just regarded it as what was needed. Mm. He needed some pictures, but he only needed one photographer to do it. He didn't need a cameraman. He didn't. Occasionally, he'd have somebody to help him with the boxes and and the cushions he liked to lie on when he was mm. so inclined and sort of thing. The, uh, the 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 platform that you photographed him under uh, with the Araflex that that great shot fantastic shot uh did we hear correctly that the uh the 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 platform above him under which he was seated uh nearly collapsed and landed on him it did it did collapse he saw it coming he was out there like a scalded cat (laughs) (laughs) and i've never seen anybody run so quickly and and efficiently in the right direction as you know when you're when you're confronted with something you, you could easily run in the wrong direction yeah, yeah. He was out of the boots and all, rare effects. Uh, <laughs> it started creaking, and then on the second creak, he was, he was he, like, nope. He knew, he knew what was happening. Wow. The intuition of a cat as well. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That yeah. is pretty interesting. Well, it certainly provides an interesting context now behind that photo, which, you know, I've looked at. Uh, I'm sure lots of Kubrick fans have regarded 
fondly many times just looking at that. There is something really special about that shot, Dimitri. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I'm very fond of it. And, and uh, the way he's cradling the camera, everything's, mm-hmm. everything's to protect the camera. <laughs> you yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. He's, he's his child. And I think he could, he could, uh, he could strip those cameras himself. I think he knew exactly how they worked. Yeah, I, I believe you're correct. As much as uh, I'm fam- familiar with what he knew, technically speaking. Yeah. Um, what is your take on Stanley's experience as a photographer and how it influenced him as a filmmaker? Well, of course, as you well know, he didn't move the camera very much. If he did move the camera, it was a tracking shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of the most beautiful uh, sequences, to my mind, he ever did, was in a uh, a shot from Full Metal Jacket when everybody is assembled around a table, mm-hmm. just deciding what the hell to do next. Mm-hmm. And th- I think that shot quite superbly, and and the camera does move a good mm-hmm. deal, mm-hmm. Uh, and of course the editing of it helped. But that, to my mind, is one of the... I mean, if I was teaching a film, I would hold that up as something that if you can't do... if You better do as well as this, otherwise give it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the whole uh, uh, philosophy he had, that if, if, uh, if, if you don't want to do the job, that's fine, but go do something else. You know, don't yeah. waste others' time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. yeah. It's highly, highly commendable. I mean, that's that's the uh, the work ethic and an approach to uh, craftsmanship that's sadly rare. Over in uh, in the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, I believe Mark and uh, and company they had recently uh, put a poll uh, to the many members uh, of, of Kubrick fans, and uh, the the question was about what fans liked most about his films and uh surprisingly but not surprisingly the number one reply was cinematography so um mark is just wondering as am i if you had uh any take on uh cinematography versus still photography i like um movement within the frame rather than moving the camera to Mm. catch the movement Mm. And um, I think a classic example of that is a, uh, a scene of of young uh, girls playing basketball in one of um, uh, Goddard's films. Uh, they go in and out of the frame. People are terrified of not following people. And I, I think Stanley let people go out of the frame and then they came back. Mm. Certainly, Goddard had a, had a passion for it, and uh, that, that's always uh, appealed to me. So I think that his, I mean, he did he did track shots sensationally, and he also occasionally used a pan. And one shot of a landscape in Ireland, it wasn't really yeah, it was in Ireland, I think. It was so slow and so steady; it was just amazing. Uh, indeed, indeed. But you know, there were no. Although he he liked no angles. 
it, it essentially wasn't acrobatic. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, did you do other set photography for other filmmakers? No, I- God, I'd had enough by then. <laughs> but once you work with <laughs> the Grand Master, right? You, you can only end up going, you know, punching down from there. Yeah, no. I, what happened was actually that after I uh, photographed Mick Jagger in Los Angeles, um, I, I was so struck by this country uh, that I made every effort to come and live here, which I did about. Uh, five, six years after that. Mm. And I met an art director in the late 70s who gave me a lot of work here. There was a great racket for photographers doing annual reports in corporate magazines, Mm. which were very interesting, too, because you met a variety of people and you had nobody, very often nobody with you. So, um, Of course. um, He... he, um, he took a lot of advice from a man whose name I've forgotten, uh, who was at one time the official director of photography on, he certainly was on um, the, the one that was shot in Ireland. Oh, Barry uh, Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the man who was, who was the director of photography uh, became very close to Stanley, actually. And helped him a great deal with with the use of daylight mm. and, and how to cope with that. That would be uh, John Alcott? Yes, indeed. Now, John Alcott was great. I remember him well. He started off as a focus puller, I think. Mm. I'm not sure about that, but he was fairly lowly. And mm. Stanley liked him a lot, and quite rightly. And... They, and I remember Stanley used a lot of Polaroids to get the lighting right. Mm. And he'd, he'd always say, what do you think, to John? Mm. Who at that time on Clockwork Orange was not the, I don't think was the director of photography. I may be wrong, but I, I can't remember. But he certainly came up and and uh, helped Stanley with, with the extraordinarily beautiful stuff they did on Barry Lyndon. Hey, thanks for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed hearing from Dimitri Castorine as much as we did. It was a pleasure and an honor for us to chat with him about his life's work and his experiences with Kubrick. We hope to bring you future installments examining the unique place still photography held for Stanley, even as he became more known for motion pictures than the brilliant still photographs of his younger days. This episode was produced by Stephen Rigg and written by Stephen Rigg and Mark Lentz. Special thanks to Dimitri Kastorin for generously sharing his time and stories with us, and you, our listeners and friends. Be sure to subscribe to, like, and follow Kubrick's Universe on Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere your pods are casted. And as always, we encourage you to join the world's greatest group for Kubrick news and discussion on the internet, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on FB. You are invited. 
Until next time, this is your host and humble narrator Jason Furlong thanking you for joining us once again. See you on the dark side of the moon. Be well, everyone. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.